Well, hey, welcome everyone. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion on behalf of our staff, our volunteers, leaders, and all who call Zion home. If you're new with us today online, thank you so much for joining us. Now, I know that many of us are looking forward to being back in person. In fact, we are this weekend. But if you're watching this, it's because you either can't come or choosing to stay home. And we totally understand and are just so glad that you are here. Um, I know right now this has been a very difficult time in the life of Zion. Uh, between COVID and quarantine and the stuff going on with staff and just the difficulties happening. But here's the thing that I want to make sure we all understand. King Jesus is still on the throne. Amen? And I think as we move forward, we have to remember that we are here because of what Jesus is doing and has done and wants to continue to do. Now, the last two weeks before today, we had both some really great teachings from John Hopple, who is our music director, and Derek Crawford, who is our youth pastor. John, right after Christmas, talked about the inconvenience of following Jesus. And he did an amazing job of reminding us that Jesus never said following him was going to be easy, much less convenient. In fact, the reality is sometimes Jesus asks things of us that make us uncomfortable. And then last week, Derek talked about the Sabbath. And this is actually one of my favorite conversations. I mean, honestly, I love talking about the Sabbath because in it we begin to understand God's heart for humanity. And so as we look at this, here's just a couple things that Derek talked about that I want to highlight. And this is actually going to be helpful today. Derek talked about that the Pharaoh, uh, that last week, the connection between the Sabbath and God's rescuing of the Hebrews through his servant Moses out of Egypt and Pharaoh's grip. The fourth commandment, now again, let's back up for a second. They're going into the desert and at Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, when it talks about keeping it holy, you have to understand that the Sabbath was already holy. It had been made holy during Genesis. At the beginning of creation, God said that the day of rest, the seventh day, was a holy day. But God had to make it a command because there's this tendency within humanity that we want to do things. And sometimes we need to be rescued from that. When Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees at the time were so obsessed with protecting the law that they made the Sabbath more important than the intention of the Sabbath. And so Jesus comes and they get upset with him because he breaks the Sabbath, in their mind anyways. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Lord over me. In fact, Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. When we understand this, and this is the point that Derek made, and I hope you heard this, and if you haven't, I hope you're hearing it now. The Sabbath is a day of rest, was not meant to weigh us down, but to set us free, to liberate us. When we understand why God gave us the Sabbath, a time to rest in Him, to grow in our relationship with Him and with one another, it is no longer a duty or an obligation, but a joy and something that we look forward to every week and every day. I am truly grateful for John and Derek and all of our staff and leaders and volunteers. I'm thankful for the work that they do and I'm especially grateful for John and Derek for bringing two really greatly timed words for our community. We as a church are truly blessed to have men and women on our staff as leaders, as volunteers who love Jesus and people well 
and desire to make Jesus famous here in Clear Lake, Iowa. Amen? Now, I have to address what has happened in our nation this week. Some things took place on Wednesday that are absolutely deplorable. And as a disciple of Christ, as a man who loves Jesus and is grateful for our country, as a pastor, I think it's important that we as a church not only condemn, but recognize that looting, rioting, rioting and the threatening of violence that was done in our capital was not okay. In fact, it was sinful, it was evil, and it was wrong, and it broke my heart, and I know it broke the heart of Christ. We must look at this and realize we as a church have an opportunity now more than ever to show the world what a different kingdom look like, looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like. On Wednesday, they celebrated as they broke in and they showed lack of control and restraint and instead were proud in that they were bringing destruction and fear. This is not what the kingdom of God looks like. And we must not condone it and must openly condemn it because it is sin and it was wrong. And we as a church have an opportunity, a responsibility to proclaim that. This is not what God's kingdom looks like. And quite frankly... This is why we need the hope of Jesus and the gospel, the good news, now more than ever. Our world is looking to the church as an example. I, I got to tell you, I believe this is why God gave the world the church. There was no plan B. The church is how God is choosing to reveal himself to the world around us, especially in times like this. So please be in prayer. Think about our country and what God wants to do here. But more importantly, let us be the lights that Christ has called us to be in the world. As we're starting this new year, we're actually entering into a new multi-series focus. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to be doing it over multiple series and looking at this new perspective, this new way, this paradigm shift that God that Jesus brought into the world through three chapters in Matthew and, in, and a couple chapters in Luke. We know this as the Sermon on the Mount. And these three chapters helped form not only our nation, but they are kind of the new constitution for the kingdom of God. What does it look like for us as his people to live as part of his kingdom in this world going forward? Now, you may not realize it, and maybe you've never even heard of this phrase, the Sermon on the Mount, but I have a feeling almost everybody here has probably heard at least one excerpt, one sentence, one phrase that was somewhere from the Sermon on the Mount. There have been hundreds, hundreds of books written just on three chapters of Matthew. I can't even tell you how many sermons have been preached and taught from the verses from these three chapters in Matthew. From the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit or the peacemakers or those who mourn. All your, maybe you've heard those things. To Christians and churches being called salt and light in the world. And turning the other cheek. These are all found in the Sermon on the Mount. Even our most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is part of this famous sermon. One of my favorite ones used by Christians and non-Christians alike is judge not lest ye be judged. I always, I always think it's funny that people go to King James whenever they want to use this verse. These three chapters throughout church history 
have challenged the way we see the world, we see ourselves, and more importantly, how we are to function as people who love Jesus. So I want to offer you a challenge this week, okay? And I hope you'll take me up on it. It's not a difficult one. This week, I would love for you to find time to read Matthew 5 through 7. Three chapters, that's it. It won't take you very long, maybe a few moments. But I have a feeling you'll be surprised at how many verses you are familiar with and didn't even realize it. That you're going to see that there's some things in this sermon that are just challenging. And this is why we're going to spend some time on it. It's an opportunity for us to shift our perspective. To change how we see the world. Now this got me thinking and and honestly I've actually thought about this for several years now. Have you ever thought about how strange church is? I mean, honestly, just think about this for a moment. Where else do people come together to sing songs and then have somebody talk at them for 30 to 45 minutes? And if you're one of those really hyper spiritual churches, an hour or more, right? Most people don't do this. You might go to a conference to do this, but people do this every week, sometimes multiple times a week to come and sing, pray, and have somebody talk at them. It's just kind of strange. There was a movie that came out in 2004. It starred Macaulay Culkin and Mandy Moore and a few other people. And it's this movie called Saved. Now, I want to tell you, it's not a Christian movie by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when I saw it, it was kind of an eye-opener of how a non-Christian probably experiences church for the first time. How somebody who is not familiar with church, when they come in, what it looks like for them as an outsider walking in. And that's to be expected because guess what? As Christians, we're called to be strangers in this world. We are called to look different and be different. But here's the premise of the movie. It's based on a young girl in high school who goes to a Christian uh, Christian school and there ends up becoming pregnant. And she has this crisis of faith. And as she's questioning what she believes and why. There's this scene where she's in an auditorium at her high school and the the principal who actually is also the youth pastor, I think his name is Skip. (laughs) He comes in and he does a backflip or a front flip and he does hallelujah and all this. But there's this, as they're coming in, there's worship happening right now for us singing something that takes place every week. There's singing taking place and Mandy Moore, who's an incredible singer and a great actress, she's singing and it's supposed to be leading worship. But as you watch it, what you see is all these high schoolers just swaying back and forth and doing their hands like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but here at Zion, sometimes during worship, people raise their hands. Sometimes people, they raise their hands as an expression of surrender or reverence or holiness to God. And and I was thinking about that as I watched. I'm like, wow, that must be really weird. For somebody who hasn't, wasn't raised in church or maybe didn't come from a church that did this and they walk in and here are people raising their hands and to them, it might look like they're kind of swaying like at a concert or something. And that's actually how it was portrayed in this movie. So a friend of mine, when I was a youth pastor, he had started coming to church and I asked him, I said, we had both seen the movie. I said, I I want you to be honest. Was that portrayal kind of how you saw the church? And he goes, yeah. I, I walked in and I've never seen people raise your hands and it, like what was going on? Like, were you trying to grab something? Was somebody sticking you up? I mean, it was, it was really a funny moment. And he acknowledged, he goes, but here's the thing. I wasn't weirded out by it. I just didn't understand it. And it made me think, what's the purpose of church? 
Why do we gather on Sundays or a Wednesday or whenever maybe your church meets? Why do we do this? Why do we sing songs to Jesus? Why do we have a sermon? Why do some people raise their hands and other people don't? Why do some people kneel? Why do we pray? All these things are great questions. After all, we have great music here at Zion. Hopefully, you have challenging, thought-provoking, encouraging messages about following and loving Jesus. But it does beg the question, who is church for? Is church for the Christian or the non-Christian? And what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I promise I will tie the threads together. I want you to hear this. The primary purpose of church is for the believer. That's the first primary purpose. That is, that is it. That is not, not it. But that's the primary reason why we meet. It's for the believer, for the person who wants to love, follow, and become more like Jesus. It is our opportunity to gather and worship Jesus together. And of course, when somebody who's not a Christian comes, it's going to feel strange. Because it is. Because this is not how our world functions. But... While the primary purpose might be for Christians to gather, to come and worship, to grow and learn, it is also a great place for those who are seeking and exploring to experience Jesus. Church is an opportunity for them to see what it looks like when God's people, when disciples gather together and are united in their purpose to worship Jesus, love, the love of God, and, each, and to help and encourage one another and learn to become and follow Him. We must be inviting non-Christians to church, but we must not forget the primary purpose is for the disciple, for the person who wants to be like Jesus. So what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if we don't know the audience of this sermon, we can miss its point altogether. And in fact, we're only going to look at really three verses from the Sermon on the Mount, two verses actually, from the Sermon on the Mount today. But before we get there, I want to kind of bring us up to speed of what's happened so far. Now, it starts in Matthew chapter 5. So we have the first couple chapters, which are about the birth of Jesus, which we just celebrated that at Christmas. So you all can go back and read that. And then it starts in verse uh, uh, with John the Baptist, his cousin. John the Baptist is sent out and he is proclaiming that there is one whose sandals he's not even worthy of tying. One who is greater than him. John came baptizing water and repentance. Now this is important that you remember this. Now Jesus comes in. He sees John the Baptist preaching in the River Jordan. People are getting baptized in water and repenting because the kingdom is coming. And John sees Jesus walking and Jesus walks up and he says, hey, you must baptize me. And John's like, who am I to baptize you? I don't have the right to do that. You should baptize me. No, I, I, I can't do this. And Jesus says, no, you have to do this. Now, you're probably familiar with this story as Jesus, as soon as Jesus was baptized, this is Matthew 3, 16 through 17, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Father affirms the son's identity, Jesus' identity. And then immediately after this, Led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is taken into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. There, Satan tempts him with three things that all human beings struggle with. First, his appetites. He hasn't eaten for 40 days, and so Satan says, turn the rocks into bread. Second, approval. If you're God's son, throw yourself off the rock so you can prove and know that the Father actually loves you. 
We all seek approval. And then third ambition, Satan says, hey, I'll make this easy for you, Jesus. Simply bow down now and everything, everything here is yours. The whole world is yours. You don't have to go through your mission. I'll give it to you now. Jesus resists the devil and is then attended to by angels. And his public ministry begins. Jesus begins his public ministry with this powerful phrase, repent, which means turn back. The kingdom of heaven is come near. And he calls four disciples to himself. Four fishermen, Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John, who are the sons of Zebedee. They drop their nets immediately and follow him. And he begins then to go out and demonstrate the kingdom of God here on earth. And he does it through three primary ways. First, he teaches. He passes on knowledge. Now, when we preach, when sermons are happening, teaching is taking place. Some of you right now are learning information that whoever it is, whether it be me or somebody else, is passing on to you. Jesus went around teaching in the synagogues and to the people around him. The synagogue is a Jewish church, essentially. Then he preached. Preaching is proclaiming of the truth. He went out into the world and proclaimed the good news of God that the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven was here and that he had come for the lost, broken and forgotten. And then third, he performed miracles. He healed people, cast out demons, brought people to life. These three things led to all of a sudden, everybody started following this traveling homeless rabbi, Jesus. The very next scene we find is Matthew chapter 5 and it's the first sermon that we see Jesus giving. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis were teachers, and they still are. They're teachers and leaders in the Jewish faith. We know that the reason why they followed Jesus is that he was unlike any other rabbi they'd ever seen. In Matthew 7, 29, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law did. Jesus taught differently but he also followed up his teaching and preaching with compassion and love and mercy and power. Power through the Holy Spirit. People flocked and wanted to be like him. Now, Matthew 5 begins with two verses that for us are super easy to glance over. But these two verses are setting up the stage for something very beautiful and profound. We must be careful not to see these two verses as just filler setting up the stage, the setting of where this sermon begins. Here it is, Matthew 5, 1 through 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. In order to move forward, we have to remember that Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish and Jews are the holy people of God that were set apart by Yahweh in order to bring the message. They have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or what we call the Old Testament. They have the Torah, the law. They have an entire way of being and doing in the world and we're part of that because as Christians, that's our heritage. We actually came out of what Jesus did and Jesus was Jewish and Jesus was a rabbi. He was a religious leader and teacher. Now, it's difficult sometimes for us because we're reading this book 2,000 years later. Sometimes things get lost in translation and it's understandable. It's understandable that a phrase for us may mean nothing, but to a first century Jew reading it, oh, did it open things up. 
You have the crowds following him. And what does he do? The first thing Jesus does is he leads them to a mountain. But more importantly, he leads his disciples to a mountain. And what does he do? He teaches. Now, again, if you're anything like I was the first time and second time and probably a hundred times I read this text, I assumed that these first two verses were simply Matthew setting the stage. But there's actually something bigger going on. I want to read to you a quote from a scholar, biblical scholar and commentator named Scott McKnight. He says this, Anyone who read the Bible as the story of God suspects there is more at stake, more at stake than Jesus simply going to a mountainside. Bible readers connect mountain with Moses. We agree Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses figure. Moses was the one who led Israel or the, the Jews out of Pharaoh's grip in Egypt and into, well, really the desert, preparing them for the promised land. As Moses ascended the mountain, that's the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given. As Moses sat on the mountain and received the word of the Lord, the Ten Commandments from Yahweh. As Moses descended the mountain and came back to the people. And as Moses taught the Torah, which is the law, the way you live as God's people, so Jesus does the same. Both Jesus and Moses had dreams connected to their births. The slaughter of children is connected to their births. Both narrowly escaped clutches of an evil ruler, Moses from Pharaoh, Jesus from, uh, from uh, Herod, King Herod. Both had to flee and then only later could they return. And like Moses, Jesus was in the wilderness, fasted 40 days, was tested by God and passed through the Jordan. Though Moses died before he actually got to even get to the Jordan. Those two verses in Matthew chapter 5 are setting Jesus up as the new Moses. The one who would lead God's people out of slavery once again. This time, the slavery, and here's point one, Jesus was the new Moses for the Jews in his day, but also for us. He came to rescue and deliver them and you and me from the slavery of sin and death. And to lead his people into the ultimate promised land, God's, king, God's kingdom. But here's the other thing. Big things happen on mountains. Whenever you hear the word uh, mountain as a Jew, all kinds of great things, big things happen on mountains for God's people. So where does Jesus lead his disciples? To a mountain, to hear a sermon, to do church. And there Jesus is going to give a new Torah a new law, a new way of understanding and being and seeing the world around us. Point two, the Jews did not see God's law, the Torah, as a burden, but a gift. We think that it was hard, but they actually loved God's law. Now, Jesus came and brought a new law, a new Torah, that was no longer through the flesh, but through the Spirit. Now, here's another small detail that we'll miss. It says that when he goes to the mountainside, the first thing he does is he sits down. Now, here, right now, this is a perfect proof of this. Here I am, I'm talking to you, and I'm standing while I'm preaching. In our culture, the person of authority is the person who is standing up. Everybody else sits down so that the person who has authority, who has a message, can preach, can teach, can share. But in the ancient world, in the world of Jews and Greeks alike, real authority was demonstrated when they sat down. When Jesus sits down to teach, 
all of his disciples, all of Rabbi Jesus' disciples would have sat at his feet to learn from their master. When Jesus sits down, he is essentially saying, listen, I'm bringing new authority and a new word, a new law. So remember what I asked, why do we go to church? We go to church as disciples to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm not Jesus. Let's be clear. No one up here is. I've spent my week at the feet of Jesus, learning from Jesus, and my job is to bring the sermon. That's part of the calling of pastors, of teachers, of preachers. We come together to learn and sit at the feet of Jesus together. I'm not preaching something to you that I didn't preach to myself first. I'm not teaching something to you that I've not submitted myself first to God and went, Jesus, what do you have for me in this? Jesus wasn't actually teaching to the crowds. He was teaching to his disciples. The crowd had the benefit of being there, the privilege of sitting and hearing Jesus. But the message was meant for his followers, the disciples. Now, another word for disciple, this is point three, is student. We who are here today at church, if you're online, you are a disciple, which means you are a student of the master Jesus. We sing songs and listen to sermons to learn in how to live and love God like Jesus, how to love each other like Jesus, even how to love ourselves like Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is about a new way of being. And it's one we can't do in our own strength. Some people think the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about how to live a good life or attitudes, that if you just adopted these attitudes, you'd be blessed. Maybe you've heard ch cheesy sermon titles, the B attitudes, as if it's all about just an attitude adjustment. Just think this way and everything will work out great. But here's what we've discovered from the Sermon on the Mount. Just as the Jews could not obey God in the old law, they just couldn't do it. They were human beings. They were flawed. We cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength. We must look at the Sermon on the Mount through a different lens. Just like God gave the Jews the Ten Commandments and the law as a way to separate them from the rest of the world, God gave us the Sermon on the Mount to help us understand what it looks like when we as the church live as set-apart people. When we begin to say, this is what it means for us. It's almost like a kingdom constitution. As Americans, we understand the constitution is a way of being. It's a way of thinking. The Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom constitution. It is a reminder, a new way of seeing the world. And that world is through the lens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There are two things essential for every kingdom. First, every kingdom must have a king or a queen. And every kingdom has citizens, people who live in that kingdom. If you are a disciple, you live in that kingdom and you worship and submit and are under the lordship of King Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. Just like our constitution is what it means for us to be as Americans, our kingdom constitution, the Sermon on the Mount, is what it looks like when we act like the people, when we think like the people who love and worship God. It's not about what you do, it's more about who and whose you are. It will change everything. Now let's go back to Moses for a second. If you're, again, you might not be familiar, but there's this moment where Moses is in the desert and God appears to him through a burning bush. And in that burning bush, 
Moses sees it and he walks up and he realized something holy is happening. So he takes off his shoes and he asks the bush what he knows is God trying to do something. Who are you? What's your name? And God doesn't respond to Moses, I do what I do. No, God says to Moses, I am what I am. We are so obsessed with doing that we forget that we are first human beings. God was not defined or is not defined by what he does. What he does comes from who he is. It's about his being. Just as the same is true for you and I. It's about our being. We do out of who we are. That is the nature of what we're about. This is why Jesus came to bring a new Torah. Remember, I had earlier, I said, I talked about uh, John the Baptist came baptizing with water. Well, he was proclaiming that Jesus was going to come and baptize in fire and in the Holy Spirit. And here's where we come full circle. We need a new baptism. Water is not enough to change us. We need the Holy Spirit in us. And when Jesus came, he came to also bring the Holy Spirit to move and change our hearts. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says this, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You actually cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount, unless you have the Holy Spirit. We must have it. Ezekiel 36, he's a prophet in the Old Testament, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Holy Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus came, yes, as a great rabbi, but more importantly, he was God become flesh. He was King Jesus and he left us with an amazing gift, the Holy Spirit. Only those who are disciples of Jesus, who declare Jesus as their Lord, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in them. The Sermon on the Mount will become nothing more than another self-help, motivational sermon, teaching series, whatever, that will leave you disappointed and empty and feeling unfulfilled unless you surrender your life to Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, soften your heart, and transform your mind. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus came proclaiming and demonstrating the supernatural kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is what it looks like when we live it through the power of the Spirit. Pastor and writer wrote, uh, R.T. Kendall says this, it shows us how the Christian life is to be lived. It is made possible only by the Holy Spirit. The way Jesus interpreted the law and the way he wants us to fulfill it cannot be carried out at the natural level. Such a righteousness, which included blessing and loving our enemies, is possible, yes, but only by the Holy Spirit. And He, meaning the Holy Spirit, enables us to manifest a level of holy living the world rarely sees but longs to see. Such a glorious, even dazzling manner of life is described and explained to us in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's the big idea, okay? I'm wrapping it up here. Here's the big idea. Jesus shows you and me as disciples what the kingdom of heaven of God looks like. First in our own hearts and lives, 
then in the lives around us. It helps us see that we are the kind of people we are striving to become and be in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. The Sermon on the Mount will radically change. So where do we go from here? Well, first, even if you're online, maybe you feel You've heard this and you're realizing that you've been living in your own strength and power. You've been living under your own laws. You've been feeling defeated and deflated because you fail miserably no matter how many times you try. You've tried it on your own. If you have never given your life to Christ and you're listening to this right now, if you're hearing this and the Holy Spirit is saying, you know you need this, you have the opportunity to receive Christ right now, even even if you're watching online. And if you're a Christian and you feel like you've been operating in your own power, you actually have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You must submit yourself to it. We call it the baptism of the Spirit. It is asking the Holy Spirit to fill your lives. These two things, if you're not a believer, confessing Christ in your life will set you apart. The Holy Spirit will work in you. And then the second one is life in the Spirit. We must have these things in order to live out the kingdom a new way. Would you pray with me? Father, there are those who are hearing this for the first time and they're realizing that they've been trying to live in their own power and strength and their way is not working. And so tonight, if if that's you, you can right now say, Jesus, come into my life. Save me. I confess my sins that you are faithful and just. I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. I surrender my life to you, Lord. And if you are... Uh, listening right now and you realize that or you feel like you've been operating in your own power and that you're struggling but you love Jesus but man you're struggling you have the opportunity now to just ask the Holy Spirit to move in you to reveal to work to give you power Lord we love you we praise you and we know you are faithful and good in Jesus name amen receive this benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may he shine his face upon you may you live in the kingdom power that comes from the Holy Spirit in a life surrendered to Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, thank you so much for being with us.